WDBM East Lansing. Welcome to The Sci-Files, an Impact 89 FM series focusing on student research here at Michigan State University. We're your co-hosts Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. One in three people in the United States will get diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime. Lung cancer is the second most newly diagnosed cancer in the United States. To tell us more about their research with lung cancer, we're here talking to Hayden Staub. Hayden, may you please introduce yourself for us? Hi, my name is Hayden Staub. I'm a grad student in the Department of Physiology in the Molecular, Cellular, and Integrative Physiology program here. And my work focuses on lung cancer. I do some other research with other cancers, but my thesis research is primarily focused on lung cancer. And my advisor is Kathy Gallo. Nice to meet you, Hayden. We've had a lot of people on the Sci-Files talk about their research on cancer. And in fact, last year we had an interview with Matt Swatnicki, who studied lung cancer. How do you do research on lung cancer in your laboratory? Yeah, and actually I've worked a lot with Matt. A lot of the cells I actually use for cell culture, he provided. So we work pretty closely together. So I use something called tissue or cell culture. It's where we take lung cancer cells that were taken from a patient that had lung cancer during their surgery, and we grow them in these little cell culture dishes with growth media. And so a lot of my work is in vitro work, and then that's contrasted to in vivo work that would be done in mice, let's say. And they do a lot of mouse work in the Andrzejczyk lab where Matt works. Got it. So in vitro is where you're working with the cancer cells in your little Petri dish while the in vivo was observing how cancer was forming inside of mice. Thanks for explaining that. Yeah, and and actually a lot of the work that's led to where I'm at in my research, we have a lot of good preliminary data in vivo, so in a mouse model. And a lot of that work was done in the Libe lab over in the Department of Pharmacology and Toxicology. I'm more focused on cancer physiology. It kind of blends between farm talks and physiology. You certainly need to know a lot of physiology if you're going to be a pharmacology researcher. And if you're doing drug development research like I'm doing in the Department of Physio, you need to kind of know how the mechanisms of the drugs work and how they get into the body. And once they're in the body, how do they influence the physiology? So it's a lot of interdepartment collaboration. And being from a small lab, the collaboration has been a, a huge thing that I've learned and I've been able to really focus on collaborative efforts with a bunch of different labs. There are so many integrated systems within the human body as well as within animal models too. Are you focusing on a particular system such as the immune system? Yeah, so cancer physiology, there's a lot of different aspects to it. And actually, one of the papers that we point people to whenever they're kind of introduced to cancer physiology is a paper called The Hallmarks of Cancer. And there's like six six different things that cancer biologists look at in terms of physiology. But in their newest paper, they added four more, and one of those is the immune system. So my work, I do look at lung cancer cells, but then I also look at how lung cancer cells interact with immune cells. And that's a big emerging field in cancer research where we're learning more about how the immune system can both act against cancer, but then it can also promote cancer. That's really interesting. And then regarding these different cancer cells, Are they taken from different patients that you collect lung cancer cells from over the years, or are they taken from one single source and then multiplied upon? Yeah, so we buy them from a company. (laughs) But what, what typically happens with, and this isn't just lung cancer cells, this is pretty much all cancer cell lines, 
is at some point, somebody had cancer, lung cancer. Some of these lines date back to people that had cancer in the 80s. But what happens is the surgery, they take the cancer out, and then they, they basically grow those cells in culture. And then these companies, the American Tissue Culture Collection is where we get a lot of ours from, they maintain those cells, they make sure that they're kind of up to standards, and all, they're all behaving the same way, so that they're easier to do research with. And then what we do is we go online, we say, I would like one tube of A549 cancer cells, for instance, and then they'll, they'll ship it to us, we'll purchase them. Sometimes we talk to other labs and we get cancer cells from other labs. Sometimes they're engineered to be fluorescent or luminescent, so they glow or they have different color proteins in it. So there's a lot of different sources, but the most important thing to think about is they all originated from somebody that had lung cancer. And typically, the different lines originated from different people, different individuals. I like that you mentioned that there are some cells that you can purchase that are genetically engineered in order to glow under a microscope or fluoresce to see a specific kind of protein. Are you studying a particular protein with your research? I am studying a particular protein. However, we don't engineer this specific protein to glow. But the specific protein that I am studying is called KRAS. And it's a protein that's encoded by a gene. So the gene is basically the blueprint, the genetic blueprint that proteins are made from. And that gene, the KRAS gene, is mutated in about 30%, depends on who you ask, but 30% of lung cancers is kind of the number I give people. It's also mutated in about half of colorectal cancers. And almost all pancreatic cancers are KRAS mutant. So it's a pretty important gene when it comes to cancer physiology. I didn't realize how common the KRAS mutation was in different cancers that can form in the body. If any are known, could you talk about what are some of the reasons the KRAS mutation could occur within a person? There are some reasons we know why mutations arise in humans. KRAS mutations are really common in smokers. So when we see lung cancer that arises from smoking, a lot of times that'll be KRAS mutant cancer. And more broadly speaking, so we can think of melanoma as an example. That's a skin cancer of pigment cells. Your skin is getting a lot of UV radiation over the day, and UV radiation can cause these mutations. So environmental factors like smoking or the sun or other kind of insults that your cells would get, those typically we think of as causes of mutations. But your cells can also mutate based on how they're replicating their, their genes and their DNA. There's kind of an error rate. The machinery that replicates the DNA has typos. And a lot of times those typos get fixed, but occasionally they don't. And we would call those spontaneously arising mutations. They're not really caused by any mutagen in specific they're just kind of randomly arising. And so there's kind of a mix on how genes can get mutated, for sure. I'd also like to tie this all in together. How is KRAS related to the immune system? So one of the papers I'm currently reading for background information on this is we've described it as orchestrating, or other researchers have described it as orchestrating the immune system. And that's kind of what my research comes down to is how specifically does a KRAS mutation in lung cancer affect the ways that immune cells interact with the cancer? And there's a lot of evidence out there to show that having a KRAS mutation in a cancer cell allows the immune system or rather makes the immune system promote the cancer. So it can either do that by causing inflammation or it can cause immune evasion. 
wherein the cancer cell kind of doesn't get recognized by immune cells that would kill it otherwise. So there's a lot of different mechanisms, and that's kind of the focus of my research is what exactly is going on in KRAS mutant cancer that the immune system is kind of disrupted and promotes cancer. So it sounds like what you're saying is the immune system actually has a difficult time identifying these KRAS mutated cells that can proliferate within your body and cause cancer. Regarding your laboratory work, what are you doing exactly? Are you introducing white blood cells into your Petri dish with the cancer cells? Or are you doing something to genetically change the DNA of the cancer to try and identify which gene is the one that's preventing immune cells from actually seeing the KRAS mutated cells? I would first say one of the hypotheses that we have is that the KRAS is making the cancer cells a little bit harder to recognize by the immune cells, but that's not the only hypothesis we have. What I'm doing to kind of research that is a few different things. So, for instance, one of the ways I'm looking at the effect of the cancer on the immune cells is I'm culturing the cancer cells, the tumor cells, in the cell cultured plate, and then I'm replacing the media after a day, putting fresh media on there, And then what's happening is the cancer cells are secreting all these different kind of factors into that media. And so what we would call that is conditioned media. It's like tumor cell conditioned media. And then what I do is I put that conditioned media onto a line of macrophages. They're called THP1s. And that's a kind of a white blood cell macrophage-like cell line. And I see what effect does the tumor conditioned media have on those macrophages. I know some of our audience have heard about macrophages before, but why are you specifically studying macrophages out of all the different types of white blood cells? Yeah, and there's, there's lots of different kinds of white blood cells too. So macrophages aren't the only ones that are involved in cancer physiology, but those are the ones I'm studying. When most people think about macrophages, if they know anything about macrophages, they usually think about the kind of gobble up the bacteria white blood cells, right? So macro means big and phage means eat. So they're they're literally named big eater cells. And what we conventionally know about macrophages is when you have a bacterial infection, find the bacteria, and then they'll literally eat the bacteria. It's such a cool thing to watch on a video. The way I study macrophages, they're more involved in inflammation. So I'm looking at how the tumor cell influences the macrophage to start making a bunch of different inflammatory factors like interleukins or cytokines or chemokines. Those are names of different factors that macrophages can make. And they pump those out of the cell and it causes a lot of inflammation. And inflammation, we generally know, promotes cancer, and cancer can grow and it can start spreading whenever there's inflammation involved. Yeah, I've seen a video of those macrophages eating the bacteria, and I think it's really cool. I'd really encourage anybody that is listening right now to, whenever they have a chance, go on YouTube and search it up. It's pretty common to find. You talked about how you're studying these factors, but how do you study the factors? There's two different ways that I'm studying these inflammatory factors. The first way is I'm actually studying them before they even exist, and I'm looking at the blueprint that the cell uses to make them. So that would be the RNA. What a cell does is it it copies its genetic material on the DNA into RNA. We have the messenger RNA. And then it uses that, it kind of reads that blueprint to actually construct the protein, right? And so these inflammatory factors are proteins. 
and it, the blueprint that's used to make those inflammatory factors, what I can do is something called qPCR. And that basically just tells me how many different copies of the blueprint of a specific factor there are. So uh, I study interleukin-1, for instance, and I can, I can say how many interleukin-1 blueprint copies are there in this cell, and I can use qPCR to find that out. The other way I can study these inflammatory factors is by actually looking at how much of the inflammatory factor is in the uh, supernatant. So the supernatant is the sciency word for like the media that's around the cells, right? So the cells are secreting these factors. They're putting these factors into the, the liquid that they're cultured in. What I can do is I can take that liquid and use antibodies to tell me how much of a specific protein there is. And it gets really specific. We've all heard of micrograms, right? So we have grams, kilograms, milligrams. Underneath milligrams, one thousandth of a milligram is a microgram. And one thousandth of a microgram is a nanogram. And one thousandth of a nanogram is a picogram. And a lot of times these cytokines are secreted at such low levels that we're looking at, at picograms. So one billionth of a gram of these cytokines. And so these antibodies are really powerful and they can tell us that with really high accuracy how much of a certain factor there is in that supernatant. That's a really great explanation of all the different techniques that you use in the laboratory. Something that people have explained from our past interviews is that they do something called knocking out a specific gene. Are you using the knockout method in your lab with the KRAS gene? don't actually mutate KRAS. Most of the cell lines that I use are actually already mutated because they come from cancers. What I am doing is I'm comparing different kinds of KRAS mutations. So when we say mutation in science and, and in biology, what we mean is it's a change in how the protein is made. So proteins are made of individual amino acids that are strung together and then folded a certain way. Whenever you mutate a gene, and then thus the protein gets mutated, we change the amino acids sometimes that are in that sequence, and that affects how the protein works. In my case, all of the mutations for KRAS that I study, KRAS is kind of like a switch we can think about. So if it's on, it's telling the cell to grow and to, to do different things like move and, and, and all these sort of cancer-like activities. And when it's off, the cell's not really doing as much. It's not very active. In the case of these mutations that I'm studying, KRAS is kind of locked in the on position. It's kind of like a switch that won't turn off. And there's different kinds of mutations too. So we don't really mutate KRAS necessarily because it's already mutated in the cells that we have, but it's mutated in different ways. And for some of those mutations, we actually have drugs that have been developed that can treat those kind of cancers that have the specific kind of KRAS mutation. But there's plenty of other lung cancers and pancreatic cancers and colon cancers, all these other kinds of KRAS mutations that we don't have drugs for. And so I'm really interested in saying, okay, how else can we treat these cancers? Well, at least scientists have identified that it is indeed the KRAS mutation that is causing these cells to proliferate. You described an experiment earlier where you introduced cancer cell media to macrophages, how you were looking at what was happening with that interaction. One thing that made me think about is, what if this KRAS mutation is impacting the immune cells to be able to detect the cancer cells themselves? One of our hypotheses is that the cancer cells, because they're KRAS mutated, are less visible to the immune cells that will be recognizing them. 
Another hypothesis that we have is that the cancer cells are influencing the macrophages to be more inflammatory, and the inflammation can cause the progression of the cancer cells, whether that means they're going to be dividing more or they're going to be moving to other spots in the body. Though people may associate inflammation with a negative connotation, inflammation can sometimes be good. Are any of these inflammatory factors that are being released good for actually trying to fight the cancer? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, in the words of the great Julia Child, all things in moderation, including moderation. So a lot of these inflammatory factors are very important elsewhere in the body. And cancer actually uses a lot of the same sort of tools that our bodies use to heal wounds. So let's say you get a really deep cut in your hand, you're going to have certain genes expressed that cause that wound to heal. A lot of times when cancer is growing and it's metastasizing or moving to other places in the body, it's using those same molecular tools that your cells would use to heal wounds. And actually, one of the experiments I do to investigate cancer cell migration, so how the cancer cells are moving, is something called a wound healing assay. And assay just means test. Now that we've developed a foundational understanding of what your research is involved with, I'm curious about the treatments that you and your lab have developed to fight off these cancer cells in your lungs. Could you talk a little bit about maybe something that has been developed within your laboratory as part of your thesis for treating lung cancer based off of these KRAS mutations? So my research is a collaboration between three different labs at MSU. The Gallo lab I'm part of, Dr. Gallo, studies intracellular signaling, so how different messages get sent within single cells. Dr. Doseph's lab, and she's a part of the Department of Physiology and the Department of Pharmacology Toxicology at MSU, she studies a plant compound called apigenin. We've seen that it can affect cancer cells, but it also affects immune cells in certain ways too, so that's a really interesting compound to us. And then finally, our third collaborator is Karen Leiby, and she's part of the Department of Pharmacology and Toxicology, and her lab studies rexinoids, and those are a class of drugs, and one of them's already been developed for cancer called vexeratine. We call them RXR agonists, and an agonist is something that activates something in the cells. So Dr. Leiby's lab studies rexinoids, and there's already been a rexinoid actually developed for cancer called vexeratine. But what they're doing in their lab, and they've supplied me with some of their drugs, is developing new rexinoids that are more effective and have less side effects, which is always a good thing in cancer treatments. I know that some people are not allowed to talk about treatments in depth because it may not be published, or there may be things like intellectual property standing in the way. Are you allowed to talk about any of the treatments that you just recently discussed? Yeah, so one of the treatments, like I said, apigenin, it's a plant compound that's derived from celery, actually. And when Dr. Joseph's lab first got here, they had a bunch of juicers that they were juicing celery with to extract this compound. It was kind of funny to look into their lab and see all the celery on their benches. But yeah, so that is a compound that we actually just published a paper last year that it can increase the susceptibility of some cancers to already established therapies. So last year, we looked at breast cancer and one of the common treatments for breast cancer. Sometimes people develop resistance to that treatment called doxorubicin. And what we found is that the apigenin, the compound that we were studying, actually it kills the cancer, but it makes it easier for doxorubicin to kill the cancer. And so that's a, a great stride to be able to find treatments that sensitize cancers to already existing therapies that people might develop resistance to. 
Another treatment that we're looking at is called a kinase inhibitor. And kinases are broadly a class of molecules that are kind of like light switches inside a cell. So if a kinase can turn another kinase on and that kinase can turn another kinase on and it makes these kind of networks within these cells that can send signals and kind of have intracellular communication, which basically means that these cells can have their behavior influenced by these kinases. One of the drugs that I'm looking at is called CEP. And CEP prevents mixed lineage kinase, or MLK. CEP prevents MLKs from activating. And our lab, the Gala lab, has previously shown that MLK inhibitors actually prevent cancer cell migration, which is really important because you don't want cancer cells to be migrating. That's how you end up with metastases. And specifically to that paper that I'm referring to, breast cancer cells can go to the brain or the lungs, and then they can start growing there and causing some major issues. So drugs like CEP can actually prevent cancer cells from moving to those distant locations. And we think that the CEP can do the same thing with lung cancer because we don't want the lung cancer to be spreading within the lungs either. It's wonderful that these treatments are being developed to help combat the effects of cancer in people's bodies. And it sounds like you've been in your laboratory for quite a while based off of everything you've been able to tell us so far. Where are you currently along with your PhD right now? And what do you want to do when you finish? So I'm actually a master's student, (laughs) but I'm in year three of the master's. COVID put me a little bit behind the eight ball with finishing up my research, but I'm planning to defend my thesis in the summer this year, and I'll be applying to biotech jobs. I'm really interested in working for a startup. I grew up in a small business family. My dad had a a garbage company and a self-storage business. And so that business background has always kind of been within me. And I'm really interested in uniting that business aspect of myself with my research interests. And so I've been talking to a few companies. It's a little bit ways off since I'm going to be defending my thesis in the summer. But yeah, I'm really passionate about business and science. And I'm also passionate about teaching too. So I definitely think at some point in my career, I'll definitely be teaching because I've actually been teaching for longer than I've been in grad school. I started in 2016 at Lyman Briggs as a learning assistant. That's wonderful, Hayden. It's really clear that you're a good teacher. You were able to articulate your research so clearly to us, and I hope our audience was able to understand it as well. Thank you so much for joining us today on The Sci-Files. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. To hear more about us and learn more about our episodes, check out scifiles.org. If you're a current MSU student that would like to be interviewed, please reach out to us at scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll catch you next week on the Sci-Files, and remember, the truth is in the science.